Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everybody. And welcome, welcome to Kremlin File. I'm here with Olga. Hey, Olga. Hi. Hey, hey, hey. Today, we're going to be talking with Edward Lucas, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, SIPA, and he was formerly a senior editor of The Economist. Edward has been a distinguished guest of ours in season one. Now, we're talking about the weaponization of hunger. This is a very, um, you know, the, a common Soviet tactic, and Putin has been taking Russia back to the Soviet Union. It's the same Soviet mentalities, same Soviet system, except he hijacked the system and kind of, you know, put his cronies and made it more kleptocratic because of the uh, access to the West and parking all the money in the West. But I mean, Russia is known for, you know, they were starving their people. They starved Ukrainians. They absolutely hold zero regard for human life. They, it was reports that they... We're going to send uh, mobile crematories to, yeah. uh, you know, uh, to mm-hmm. follow their soldiers to kind of dispose of, of who died. And after now, we're close to, if not over 30,000 Russian soldiers yeah. who have died. And, you know, and for the West, that is a huge, huge figure for Russia. They are more than willing to sacrifice a million deaths without acknowledging them, hiding it, you know, cremating them. Uh, now there are reports that they're burying their soldiers in, in Belarus, so their yeah. family never even see the remains. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is how Russia is. They have zero regard. I mean, the leadership's never cared about people. They have zero regard, you know, if they send untrained soldiers that they plucked out of, you yeah. know, villages uh, as cannon fodder. And that's it, you know. So absolutely, the fact that they're weaponizing hunger, this is something, you know, that they've done over the centuries. And they're using the same tactics again as blackmail against yeah. the free world, you know, yeah, because uh, they, they want to create the instability and hopes that that's right. if yeah. they continue, you know, as they continue their assault on Ukraine, that the West will buckle and that the free world will buckle because of the high, you know, gas prices and and the uh, shortages of food that are coming this fall and, you know, and just the whole economic instability. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, this is something we're going to ask Edward right away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the, no, the, I, I was also reading something that, I mean, they're pushing, as you said, for, they said, I think it was Lavrov, if I'm not mistaken, his latest statement. Okay, you want the grain, then lift the sanctions. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is the the same old, same old, same old. Yeah, absolutely. but yeah, but are we going to buckle, Olga? No, we are not going to buckle. The West, if they don't learn right now, and if they, you know, give in to Russia, the problems in the next few years are going to be 10 times yeah. worse than what we're yeah. seeing now. Yeah. Because right now it's contained in Ukraine and it's, you know, poor Ukrainians are dying every single day for the world to stop Russia there. 
you know, but if Ukraine falls, trust me, that is yeah. only the beginning. Yeah. You know, we will see Russia continue marching through Europe, mm -hmm. you know, ramp up their uh, operations and attacks against United States, against Canada, mm -hmm. and anyone and everyone who, you know, uh, came together to help Ukraine. Yeah. So yeah. right now, I mean, yeah. we can't buckle. I mean, no, we can absolutely not. And I laugh when I hear people say to me, yeah, but it's costing a lot. And I sat there and I said, well, A, Ukrainians are paying with their life. Okay? Yeah. And they are protecting us. B, you haven't seen anything yet if you think that this is what it costs to be able to counter you know, Russia in all its dimensions, the sense of, let's say, what you were talking about, for example, um, I know that the last shipment for Italian weapons, whatever few weapons they are sending, that kit went out last week, and we got a cyber attack right away. And we got yeah. all sorts of disinformation that was pumped out through the pipelines into the Italian media and mainstream. And this is what's happening. So anytime one of the countries decides, okay, let's do something, boom. No, they get because, hit. Because Russia is a mafia state. And it's a mafia state that uses their intelligence services to intimidate, harass, bully, and destroy other countries. And this is what they do. And this is what they will always do. I mean, you know, with Putin, before Putin, I mean, we've had the same story over and over and over. The, you know, the whole system honestly yep. needs to be destroyed. But this is the mentality and this is what they do. And this is why their playbook is so predictable and why we're in a better position because we actually know what they're going to do. I mean, you know, I've been discuss discussing Russia forever and, you know, putting out warnings and people are like, how did you know this? Um, Because... Mm -hmm. This is what they do. They do. This is exactly. Re they repeated, you know, they'll kind of adjust their playbook. But for the most part, it is as expectable, yeah. as expected as the sun rising. That's so, right. So, I mean. That's right. And the one thing that we ask everybody to do, and this took a long time for me personally, is to let go of our Western mentality and think that Putin is going to act the way we do. It doesn't work that way. And I have to thank all of my Ukrainian and Russian friends and you, dear Olga, for having to know that actually helped us understand, get out of that mentality yeah. and get into trying to understand the way it operates. Look at the actions. What does it do? Not what does it say it does, right? So it's if that made sense. Well, that's that's everything. I mean, that's the whole problem over the past few decades of why the West failed to stop Putin. One of the problems. One yeah. is because he just bought so many people. The yeah. other problem is because they, you know, people uh, formulate their foreign policy off of Western thinking. Mm -hmm. And like I said, with the um, you know military soldiers dying in the West, you know, if a military, say, an American soldier. Mm -hmm. dies on the field. Mm -hmm. First of all, his battalion will do everything to secure the body, to bring it home. To them, that is important. They, you know, even, I mean, they'll take every single risk to bring the soldier home. Um, and then, you know, when he gets home, there's proper, you know, burials and and it's mm -hmm. sentimental and, and people in the country remember what he sacrificed and, you know, 
In Russia, absolutely not. I mean, yes, they have their, you know, circus uh propaganda like a metal distribution right but when it comes to something that is not uh, does not mm -hmm. fit in to their image then they hide it and you see with Moskva you know the sinking yep. of Moskva they hid all those deaths the family members yep. received zero answers you know you see with the soldiers the family members the, the dead soldiers which close to 30,000 the family members have received nothing and russia doesn't care about life they do not care how many people died they don't care that's yeah. and that's the big difference they, they don't care i mean ukraine had one of the biggest problems over the in the first month of the war russian dead soldiers laying on their streets and no one's coming to pick them up yeah, yeah. i mean you know yeah. what kind of country yeah you yeah. know does that and no western mentality you can imagine you know that you have i don't know at that time it was ten thousand, you know soldiers scattered on streets with no one coming to get you no one caring maybe someone threw you in a ditch if it was you know good enough but that's it you know so i mean this is there's a huge difference in mentality i mean and just mm -hmm. You know, Russians yeah. clearly have the most expertise because of what happens domestically there to people. And then Ukrainians obviously get, you know, have uh, uh, been under uh, going attacks for the past three decades almost from yeah. Russia since yeah. the collapse. So, yeah, yeah. So, without any further ado, Edward, welcome back to Kremlin's file. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Edward, the world has changed since the last time we spoke. We spoke in the summer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and we were talking about all sorts of you no know, security issues, so on and so forth. So we're going to just jump in to what is happening exactly now. And I wanted to touch on an article that came out that you wrote um, called Hunger Games. And everyone, you can find it in SIPA. Because what we're seeing, Edward, is that we'll get into Ukraine and we also want to talk about NATO, okay, as well, and all the huge developments that's happening there. Um, but one thing that did strike me is we're seeing Russia weaponize everything, okay, when we think of, right? And we've seen it, you know, before the war, information warfare, we've had energy warfare. And now we're also seeing the weaponization of hunger that you wrote about, and also of migration that might ensue. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? It's really important that we get this information out to people. Well, thanks, Monique. And I'm, I'm sorry we're going in this direction because I think there was a kind of honeymoon, if one could call it that, at the beginning of this terrible war in Ukraine, where we felt that all the sacrifice and heroism of the Ukrainian people was... Um, kind of in a way worth it if it had um, woken up the West to the shape and the scope and the dimensions of the threat from Russia. And I'm beginning to feel that honeymoon didn't last very long. And although the Russian attack is bogged down on the battlefield and they're devoting enormous amounts of effort to making quite small gains in the um, east of Ukraine, I feel on the diplomatic front, uh, Russia's doing much better than we thought, that the Western unity is looking, if not exactly crumbling, at least squishy. And the fears of the 
hunger, both in humanitarian terms and the political effect of um, a big famine in, in the autumn, are changing the political calculus in a way that suits Vladimir Putin. And I'm worried about that. Yeah, I think we all are. Right, Olga? This is something Absolutely, that... because we've seen, like with Italy and, you know, how Putin is like, if you play his game and, you know, uh, you know, uh, overlook what the atrocities he's coming in Ukraine, then he'll give you the deals. He'll provide you the food. He'll continue on. And for countries who are taking a firm stand, he, you know, is cutting off energy, cutting off today. He, they cut off the Dutch energy. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're seeing this happening and it's, you know, now it's happening at a critical time because we have a, a widespread assault on Ukraine with, I mean, uh, you know, atrocities coming out, mass graves. And I, I mean, every day it's just getting more and more, you know, worse information. Yeah. Yeah. And also the EU today came, uh, I think it was yesterday, late last night or early today. I've been doing exams all day, so I wasn't able to find out exactly when. But there is a sixth uh, sanctions package that has come out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, have you been following that, Edward? Can you give us a little bit of information about that? And yes, if you're satisfied um, with it. Well, I think it's impressive that the EU is still moving forward. And everything that we're seeing now would have been thought of as unimaginable only six months ago. Um, I think the problem is that the this latest round of sanctions has a big um, question about timing. It's about getting Russian, getting um, Russian seaborne oil off um, mm. the European shopping list, um, but European, but Russian pipeline oil is still coming, and it's still coming particularly to Hungary, which has negotiated a kind of get-out clause. clause. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's true that Hungary, which is landlocked like Austria and some of the other Central European countries, doesn't have easy access to seaborne. Um, crude, so they're dependent on the pipelines. One might ask, why are you so dependent on the pipelines and why didn't you diversify earlier? Um, but I think that, to me, the, the the main lesson of this is not so much the squeeze it's putting on Russia probably sometime next year when it really bites. It shows the ability of the Hungarian government under Viktor Orban um, to make its own rules. And you know, this it's worth remembering that uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, which is the, effectively the EU's government, flew to Budapest to try and push the Hungarians into accepting um, the, the collective oil embargo, and she didn't succeed. And this is this this is troubling. We have members of the EU which are not playing by the same um, rules as everybody else, and there doesn't seem to be much the EU can do about it. Yeah. In fact, the first thing that came to mind while I was reading about it, just very, you know, on a superficial level, was this really looks like a victory for Orban. Uh, I'm not sure whether we could interpret it, but you've said it yourself. It's something that is extremely, um, it's it's troubling and it's worrying because going forward, I think we're going to have to show even more unity and not, no slack off. And it's also troubling, I mean, in a NATO context, it's troubling because Hungary is also a NATO member and it underlines the, the difficulties that the alliance, the NATO alliance will have at, at 30. And it also reminds us that with the problems we have with Turkey, um, and I'm, I'm interested to see, getting back to the hunger um, thing, that, um, that there's been a phone call with um, President Erdogan of Turkey 
apparently talking to Putin about getting some kind of um, naval, merchant navy traffic freighters going out of Odessa with Ukrainian grain on board. Now, I, I, obviously, it's better to have the grain than not to have the grain, but I wonder what the conditions are here, and what sort of bargain Putin's driving, and whether Erdogan is playing on the same team as, as mm. us while he, while, while he negotiates that. Yeah, yeah. Edward, so when Russia launched their assault on Ukraine, they were calculating, you know, on the long, playing the long game. And the long game is, you know, waiting for uh, cracks in the alliance. I mean, they didn't expect to have such unity in the alliance. But when they saw it, they were playing for waiting for cracks in the alliance. They were waiting for media coverage to wane. And, you know, in the same time, uh, ramp up their disinformation operations in order to kind of muddle the truth of what is happening in Ukraine. And we're seeing specifically Germany being targeted, you know, where uh, they're putting out a lot of disinformation that Ukrainians are the ones committing the mass graves and, and uh, creating the mass graves and committing all the atrocities. How do you see this alliance going? Because we've seen a very troubling thing over the past I would say a few weeks, you know, with this now new uh, train of thought or Kremlin train of thought that Ukraine should, you know, just be okay with ceding land mm -hmm. to make everything, you know, the war yeah. stop. So yeah. where do you see well, this going? Because this well, is I think now again like... And, again and again, we make the mistake of trying to fit Russia and the Kremlin and Putin's decision-making into a Western frame of analysis. So it's quite true that Putin's made a number of huge miscalculations. He didn't tell his military um, what sort of tasks they were facing. They were badly briefed. They had, didn't have the right supplies and ammunitions. They had huge military set. Wow, what a terrible mistake for Putin. Well, Putin just finds another, you know, finds more soldiers and more equipment and does something else. We say, look, Putin's plan A was to take Kiev in 72 hours. It was going to be the Prague Spring all over, you know, the, the crushing of the Prague Spring all over again. There'll be no resistance. Wow, did he miscalculate? Well, yeah, he miscalculated on that too. But he's got a new plan. You, know, you go from plan A to plan B to plan, plan C to plan D. And what we, I think, miss here is that the Kremlin is able just to revise its objectives and its tactics and to keep going in a way that perhaps the Western leadership under scrutiny from lawmakers and the media and civil society and so on might not. And so we're now in a, as you said, in, in a situation where Putin is fighting a war of attrition. It's a war of attrition on the ground. It's also a war of attrition when it comes to willpower. And he thinks that his willpower is stronger than the West's willpower because it always has been in the past. And um, I fear he may be right. There's the third front, which Gideon Rackman wrote about in the FT very well today, where, which is the economic attrition. And maybe the time will come when Putin runs out of money and runs out of equipment because of Western sanctions. I'm skeptical about that because I think Russia has immense reserves of um, ability to get around things. And so long as they can keep on firing dumb, dumb munitions and hurling conscripts in <laughs> battle, they may keep going for longer than we think, but it's uh, yeah, if if there's a note of hope, it's that the economic attrition is the one where the West has the upper hand and, and Russia has the is on is is, is in, in an inferior position. Hmm. I have one question about France and Germany, Edward. Now that you're talking about, let's say, the long game and, and the war of attrition, is this what is also in the calculus of France and Germany? 
that they believe that we're going forward? How, how do you view and interpret what is coming out of there right now? Yeah, I think it's very hard to interpret this. I think that Macron loves the idea of being the, the deal maker. Mm-hmm. And there is always a danger that he, he will break ranks, try and phone Putin, try and do, try, try and do a deal because he has this um, great desire for the limelight. And I believe there's now a new verb in Russian and others. Yeah. Slavic languages of Mark, Macronich, yeah. um, which is <laughs> to Macron. Macronized. Um, and I've also heard of people saying, and there's a German word, Scholz, which is to pave like Scholz. And um, these are obviously ornaments to our um, dictionaries, but I'm not sure they help much with our diplomacy. I think that with Germany, there is still a sea change. I don't discount the idea of this Zeitenwender. And I think that's in given where Germany's come from, this is still a big deal, but it's painfully slow. And we see a a lot of rather kind of vacuous public philosophizing with Schultz tweeting, can one really secure peace without, you know, without only by peaceful means? And it has a sort of sophomoric tone to it as the Germans sort of debate ponderously um, their, um, their, their, their place in the world and the way the world works. Meanwhile, every day, hundreds of people are being killed and maimed and thousands are losing their homes. And I I find it quite the the kind of arrogance of the Germans and thinking they have all the time in the world to make their mind up is quite quite stunning. But on the other hand, it's better to have Germany making its mind up than not making its mind up. So um, Mm. we, but I, and, and I, so I think that things are still, are still moving forward um, in, in Germany, but it's, it's difficult. I was on a panel with a um, Ukrainian MP uh, yesterday, uh, who was uh, saying Kirilko, uh, who, who was saying that we just don't get, we haven't getting weapons from Germany. We actually only got helmets. Uh, maybe there's a bit more than helmets have come, but given the enormous quantities of what the United States is sending, and the enormous, more enormous efforts that the Estonians and Lithuanians, particularly, are making relative to their size, and the substantial amount that Britain's doing, Germany given its enormous economic weight on the continent of Europe, is in a shamefully low position in terms of how it's helping. Yeah. With uh, Germany and France, do you see the going forward in Europe, the power shifting from Germany and France to Eastern Europe? Because the Eastern European uh, countries, you know, have created such a strong alliance and they've been proven right because, I mean, everything we're seeing now is what they've been, you know, sounding the alarm on over the past few decades because they are Russia's neighbor. And, you know, they've uh, one way or another underwent these uh, attacks, not like this, but, you know, in pieces. So do you see um, the power shifting away eventually from Germany and France? Well, I think um, Katharina Crook put it very well in, I think, in a tweet today where she said the moral center of gravity in Europe has, has shifted east. And really, you know, President Zelensky, since the start of the war, has been the leader of the free world um, in a way that um, is really impressive. I don't think anyone since Reagan has had that sort of um, combination of, of you know, strategic and rhetorical um, abilities. And Germany's sort of self-declared um, role as the custodian of the country of the continent's morals, I think, is looking very, very tattered now. And the, you know, the there's a lot there's a lot in German in, in Germany about how you know, we're a very good country and we do good things and mm. um, sort of slightly self satisfied And you get this in Sweden as as well as some other countries. But I, I think that's 
you know, that that's definitely definitely changed. Um, and if the Germans say, well, because of our terrible history, we have to be particularly sort of moral and high-minded now, people just laugh um, because they're being naive and selfish. Um, but I, I think that there's there's really a kind of vacuum on the Western side of the continent. You have France, which talks but doesn't act. Um, Germany, which talks, um, doesn't you know, doesn't talk and doesn't act. The European Commission, with extremely unimpressive senior leaders. Um, yeah, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, he would be able to tell you exactly who Charles Michel is or what he does. And mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, von der Leyen mm-hmm. hasn't been um, particularly effective. And I forget the name of the other fellow. Um, so. Um, I'm being ironic there. Um, the, um, the, the, but so, I, so I think there is a vacuum, and, and, and that's partially filled by um, President Zelensky. It's partially filled by Kaya Kallas of Estonia, and mm-hmm. um, and, um, and 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 but it's you know, and it's you know, to some extent filled by President Biden. But I think that's what. So, so it's not so much that leadership is really shifting; it's that we have a, a, a leadership vacuum on on the continent, and it's filled by um, a handful of admirable politicians um, on, from the eastern side. Uh, I'd also mention maybe Gabrielis Landsbergis from, uh, from mm-hmm. Lithuania and um, Pre- President uh, Chaputova from Slovakia, who's just visited Kiev. But it's, it's really hard to imagine the time, or to think of a time, when um, the European political class has been less impressive, I'm afraid. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Olga, you had your questions? Yes. So with uh, Finland and Sweden now being eager to become, uh, you know, the latest NATO members and and now they want to join, we see Turkey as, you know, putting a stop to it. Two questions. One, do you see Turkey, are they doing this for concessions to see what they could gain out of it? And do you see it going through? And also, what do you see the threat to Finland and Sweden from Russia? Do you see them, you know, going through on the threats? of if Finland and Sweden join, that they will attack them and, you know, and all the other propaganda that comes out of the Kremlin? I think that Turkey is bargaining hard because Turkey can, and the stuff they want, they may want to get back into the F-35 program. Maybe they're looking for concession to the United States. Um, Maybe they want some sort of cooperation on the presence of um, Kurdish emigres who they don't like in um, Mm. in Stockholm. It'll be tricky. The the Swedish minority government, I think, rests on the support of one MP who is a sort of particular from a Kurdish Kurdish background, and it will be difficult for them to um, do anything on that, leaving aside all the legal and other obstacles of um, accepting Turkish interference in Sweden's internal affairs. Um, So, um, but I I have a feeling this will be this will be sorted out in one way or another, and it may be that Sweden will end up owing the United States quite a lot for some intervention the United States makes with Turkey. Um, but it, it also underlines this kind of general shambles within NATO, which is at this scale and with this lack of cohesion is not tremendously effective. And I think that also reflects the situation in the Baltic Sea region, that there's a, a number of very serious problems there, which I've outlined in reports over the years, ranging from lack of a maritime strategy, lack of prepositioned stocks a completely incomprehensible command structure um lack of the amd um, air missile defense assets in the baltic states which the ones most need them um problems with isr intelligence events and reconnaissance which is partly due to the nato non-nato divide 
poor military mobility, it's difficult to get stuff around. Now, all those problems become more fixable as a result of Sweden and Finland joining. So the intelligence sharing, for example, just isn't a problem anymore. Um, And other problems, we are in a position now where we can solve. It doesn't mean they're solved, but they are are more solvable. Command structure, for example. I think the problem is that the most vulnerable um, bit of the Baltic Sea region is the Suvalki-Alitos corridor, that narrow bit of land between Poland and, and Lithuania. And that really relies on the United States being there in, in, in substantial numbers to protect it. And there's a big question over that because the um, United States can't carry all the do all the heavy lifting on its own. Um, there aren't many other countries that are able to do it. Strategically, it's troubling to be overly dependent on the United States anyway, because what happens if we get a change of administration? Um, and so that problem is, is, is so the sort of the, what's the American connection in the Baltic? It's really difficult. But what the, the other worry, which is related to this, is that the United States and um, other countries may say, let's outsource defence of the Baltic Sea region to the Swedes and the Finns and the Danes and the Norwegians and the Poles. There you have countries that are big, in case of Poland, countries that are advanced, in case of the Nordics, and countries that are vulnerable, in case of the Baltic states. So let's stick all that together and let them get on with it. And the trouble with that is you then end up without the kind of military mass and the nuclear guarantee and so on. So the Balts are really quite worried about that. They don't want mm. to be outsourced to the Finns and Swedes. They want to have lots of American soldiers and you know, maybe some right. British ones as well on the ground. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm, 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 I'm troubled by that. I think it's going to be a, a difficult question for the next couple of years, even absent an immediate Russian military threat. Okay. Lots of problems to solve. Lots of problems to solve going forward, but at least we're looking at them. Whereas before yeah. we know, these were not yeah. even up to. I mean, in our conversation during the summer, Edward. Okay, we we were even we weren't even there. No one talking. You're about right. These no, things. You're right. You know, it's best to have a to do list than not. Have <laughs> exactly. <a to-do> list. <laughs> exactly. Even better well, to start doing. Yeah, and just something. if I can just rob, can I rob two more minutes from you? Yeah, yeah. Is that possible? Yeah, just one last thing. We do have the problem of trying to get the grain out of uh, of Ukraine. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, because that is something that is so important to do. Is there a way of solving this at all? Or are we just going to have to, I don't know. Um... Well, I think what I've been saying at the beginning of this, since the beginning of this, is we're going to have a confrontation with Russia sooner or later. It's best to have a con- confrontation while we still have a functioning Ukrainian state. Um, rather than waiting until Ukraine is crushed in a sort of Syria-style war of attrition, and then we're confronting Russia without Ukraine and perhaps in less favourable territory like the Baltic states. So I think the fundamental question is, are we willing to confront Russia? And if we're willing to mm-hmm. confront Russia and take their, you know, look at their escalation dominance and say we have even more dominant escalation dominance, you know, you threaten us with nuclear weapons, we right. turn every computer in Russia into a brick in the space of six hours, because we can do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the stuff we, we could do, um, if we're willing to do that, then the grain problem becomes secondary. Until you're willing to do that, then the grain problem becomes, is, 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 is very big. But I see the grain problem as, as basically a symptom of our irresolute attitude. We have the naval and other power. We have the financial firepower to ensure the ships. We have, you know, we could do this if we wanted to. The real problem is we don't want to do it. Okay, okay. In fact, that's the, I think it's the slow pace. I think we're all very, feeling very, very frustrated right yeah. now that we're not hitting this very hard and we should. And- well, if we feel frustrated, just imagine how the Ukrainians feel. 
Exactly. 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 And to wrap up, Edward, where do you see this going over the summer? Because right now the war is, you know, still contained in Ukraine. There were um, some scares uh, that Russia was laying groundwork, you know, to move into Transnistria, Ossetia, um, you know, and cause instability in Georgia. Do you see it pouring out, you know, into Europe? And do you see what, where do you see going in the next three months? The, the, the military will continue in a sort of, you know, creeping war of attrition, and I suspect we'll see some more Russian gains. You may see some Ukrainian counterattacks in places, but I don't think that from a military point of view, Ukraine can mount a big counterattack because that requires a combination of maneuverability and firepower that they don't have at the moment. They can disrupt the Russian campaign very severely. I don't think we're going to get to talks because we aren't in the kind of mutually hurting stalemate where um, talks become... Um, become possible. I think the Ukrainians still feel the current system is intolerable. But they, they have a chance of pushing back. I think Western weapons will continue to make a, a difference in Ukraine, although logistics are a very serious problem. And I think until the midterms, America, the, the administration will continue to do what it's doing, which is um, throwing a lot of money and equipment at the problem, but not perhaps the political will that is needed for a decisive intervention. And that, I fear, is going to be that, so much more suffering, uh, much more destruction, um, fatigue in Europe, some, mm -hmm. some signs of disunity. And we will look back on this and say, why did we, went, you know, why did with we all win? this cost we're, we're bearing now, if we just yeah. spent one hundredth mm -hmm. of, what we're, of the cost and risk we're bearing now before the war, um, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Edward, I think we're going to leave it off on that. We it's definitely great to be Call me again. Thank you, Edward. Thanks, Edward. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.